0: Daniel Barnett here. Thank you so much for listening in. Just before I start talking about unfair dismissal time limit extensions, a quick thought. I would love to be able to help you by answering your questions on employment law, particularly if you're an HR professional and you need help on a specific subject. So if you've got a particular question, drop me an email at podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk. And maybe, just maybe, we'll discuss it. I'll give you a ring, we'll discuss it, and we'll turn that discussion, anonymized of course, into one of these podcast episodes. So if you've got a question, send it to me at podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk and we'll take it from there. And now on with the episode. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. I've just published a little book on time limits in employment tribunals. And I thought in this week's episode, I'd read you a chapter from it. The one I've picked is about extending the three month unfair dismissal time limit. Now, let me make one preliminary point. What I'm talking about doesn't take into account extensions because of ACAS early conciliation. That's for the very simple reason that early conciliation has its own chapter in the book. What I'm going to talk about today is the statutory test for Extending Time in Unfair Dismissal Cases, which is contained in section 111, subsection 2 of the Employment Rights Act 1996. Now, you know the test. It's twofold. The employee has to show, number one, it was not reasonably practicable to present his or her claim in time, and number two, That nevertheless, the claim was presented within a period of time which the tribunal thinks is reasonable. And it's for the employee to prove it wasn't reasonably practicable to present their claim in time, not for the employer to disprove it. There are seven situations I'm going to discuss. Number one, technological failure. Number two, when they send the form to the wrong place. Number three, when the employee is ill. Number four, ignorance, when they say they don't know about the time limit. Number five, when their advisors are at fault. Number six is when they're going through an internal appeal. And number seven is where new information comes to light, which they didn't know about within the original three-month period. Case law suggests that section 111, the time limit section, should be interpreted liberally in favour of the employee. It's particularly relevant what the employee knew about their right to bring a claim and what they knew about the relevant time limits. Knowledge of the right to bring a claim makes it more difficult for an employee to argue their ignorance of the time limit was reasonable. The good news for employers is that the test isn't one of fairness. It isn't one of prejudice or lack of prejudice to either the employer or the employee. It's about whether the claim could have sensibly been lodged in time. If it could have, but wasn't, the employee's application for an extension of time will almost always fail. So what sort of things mean it's not reasonably practicable to bring a claim within the three month time limit? As you can imagine, there's an awful lot of case law on this issue involving employees who are desperate to get their late claims within time. The decisions are all very factual-based, so the back catalogue of reasons for extending time doesn't always apply in the same way to one set of facts as it did to another. But let's look at some of the arguments which employees have used successfully in the past. The first is technological failure. We've all been there, desperately trying to communicate with the tribunal on deadline day and failing miserably. A technical hitch during a last-minute bid to lodge an ET one in time is unlikely to get much sympathy from the tribunal. The obvious question they'll ask is, "Why did you leave it so late?" And as one judge noted in the Employment Appeal Tribunal case, officially against Working Men's College, back in two thousand and four. Quote, it's the common experience of anyone who's tried to operate a computer, a printer, or a fax machine. Shows the date, doesn't it? Computer, printer, or a fax machine that they are temperamental creatures and one cannot rely on success first time within a few minutes. End quote. Now, of course, technology's moved on a lot since 2004, but the temperamental nature of computers and technical equipment hasn't you should see my broadband at home, up and down, on and off. And the tribunal won't care if something's lodged one minute late or one month late. A miss is a mile. The effect is the same. If it could have been lodged in time, it was reasonably practicable to do so. In a case called Beasley and National Grid, the employee lodged his claim form 88 seconds after midnight on deadline day, 88 seconds late. he tried to lodge it 15 minutes earlier, but had got the email address wrong. And the email was returned undelivered a minute later. He'd then sent a test email at three minutes to midnight before finally sending the claim form at 88 seconds past midnight. And both the Employment Tribunal and the EAT said it was reasonably practicable for the employee to lodge his claim in time. Same decision was reached by the Employment Appeal Tribunal in an even stranger case called Miller and Community Links Trust, where the claim was submitted online at one second to midnight, and it was received by the Employment Tribunal Service at eight seconds past midnight. And the tribunal wouldn't extend time because it had been reasonably practicable to lodge the claim in time. So that's number one, technological failure. Number two is what happens when the employee sends the form to the wrong place. In a case called McFadden against PB Recovery, the claim form was submitted online, giving the employer's Bristol office address, but not the employee's place of work in Scotland. The claim was received by Bristol within the time limit but was rejected. Bristol didn't have jurisdiction to hear the claim because the employee worked in Scotland, which is a separate tribunal system. The claim was submitted a few days late to the Glasgow Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal didn't agree, did not agree, that the claim was deemed received when it was lodged in Bristol. The EAT said in some cases, if there'd been a technical fault, an extension of time might be justified, but in this case, the employee had control over where the claim went. He just sent it to the wrong place, and that was a win for the employer. In another claim about online lodging called Solus and Matthews, the employee did an internet search for industrial tribunal after he was dismissed in 2009. Of course, Tribunals had been renamed Employment Tribunals three years earlier. They were still called Industrial Tribunals in Northern Ireland, and he followed the internet link that popped up on a search and accidentally lodged his claim in Northern Ireland instead of England. The Northern Ireland Tribunal sat on the claim for two weeks, rejected it, and by that time Mr Matthews was out of time to lodge a claim properly. The Employment Appeal Tribunal said the crucial question to ask was whether the mistake by Mr. Matthews was a reasonable one to have made, and the case was sent back to the Employment Tribunal to decide whether the mistake occurred because the employee didn't make the necessary reasonable inquiries. We don't know what the end result was, but my instinct is a tribunal would have said he didn't act reasonably by clicking on the wrong jurisdiction's link and therefore couldn't have an extension of time. Let's move to scenario number three illness. If an employee cannot lodge their claim in time because of genuine illness, the tribunal is likely to decide that it was not reasonably practicable for them to have done so. In a case called Schultz, Against Esso, the employee was dismissed due to absence related to depression. He spent the first six weeks of the limitation period trying to pursue an internal appeal. More about appeals in a moment. And in the last six weeks, he was too ill to instruct a solicitor. The Court of Appeal said it had not been reasonably practicable to present the claim within time, and therefore he could have an extension. Although the employee was well enough to present his claim in the first six weeks, he was trying to pursue an internal appeal, which was designed to avoid litigation completely. So that was a win on that occasion for the employee. The tribunal has to decide in each case whether the illness was sufficiently serious to justify a finding that it was not reasonably practicable to lodge the claim in time. What if the employer knows that the employee is well enough to do other normal day-to-day things, or even pursue an event which is stressful like moving house? Well, it could be relevant, and a tribunal will look at all the facts. In a case called University Hospitals Bristol against Williams, an employee with a serious mental health issue didn't lodge her claim in time. The employer said she should have done so because she managed to move house and find her child a new school within the three-month limitation period. The Employment Appeal Tribunal disagreed. Just because she was well enough to do those things, said the EAT, it didn't follow. It was reasonably practicable for her to also lodge her claim within that period. I think that's a case of hard cases make bad law. Whether it's reasonably practicable to lodge a claim in time will differ for each employee based on their own health and circumstances. Number four. Ignorance. What if an individual simply does not know their rights, either the right to bring a claim or the relevant time limit? Is that enough to win an extension of time? Well, not necessarily. The ignorance has to be reasonable, and it's for the tribunal to decide what's reasonable. The difficulty for employers is the decision is one on the facts. The tribunal decides what it believes, which means it's very difficult to overturn by an appeal court. So what sort of things can be reasonable ignorance? A potentially misleading letter from an employer which leads the employee to believe that a claim could be left until an appeals process is exhausted, might be reasonable in some cases, as it was in a case called Marks and Spencer against Williams Ryan. In that case, the employer's letter referred to the employee's right to bring a tribunal claim, but didn't give any deadline. The Employment Appeal Tribunal said a finding of reasonable ignorance on the part of the employee was generous but not perverse. In another case, Andrews against King's College Hospital, honest but wrong information about the deadline given to the employee by the employer resulted in reasonable ignorance. So, what to learn from that? Well, uh, you should make sure any correspondence to employees is clear accurate and not misleading. Youth and inexperience can be relevant too. In John Lewis against Sharman, we seem to have a lot of department stores involved in these cases, a young and inexperienced 20-year-old had no claim or no knowledge of employment tribunals and said he didn't have any knowledge even of the right to bring an unfair dismissal case. He was believed and A tribunal held he was reasonably ignorant about his rights and he wasn't required to research the position until after the outcome of his internal appeal. And what sort of things are not reasonable ignorance? Seemingly similar stuff, actually, which shows these cases really do depend on their individual facts and on the throw of the dice. In Porter against Bandridge... The employee was unaware of the right to bring a claim, but on the facts, it was found he should have known about it. The same happened in Reed against Frayne, where an employee lodged a claim late because he thought the deadline ran from the day after dismissal rather than the termination date. The Employment Appeal Tribunal said his ignorance was not reasonable. He'd not been misled, he'd failed to seek advice, and had just made wrong assumptions. So far, we've covered technological failure, sending the form to the wrong place, illness, and ignorance. Now let's have a look at situation number five, where the advisor is at fault. If an employee is represented by a skilled advisor, a solicitor, or an employment consultant, or a citizen's advice expert, the tribunal will usually say it was reasonably practicable to present the claim in time, Even where bad advice has been given. In this situation, the employee has a negligence claim against the advisor. So, if it's a skilled advisor who has failed to lodge the claim in time, the tribunal will want to know that the advisor has taken all reasonable steps to make sure it was lodged in time. An extension of time on this basis is rare because the standards of knowledge and skill expected are much higher. Than that of an ordinary employee. Number six, internal appeals. This is important. An employee will not be let off the time limit hook just because they are pursuing an internal appeal. Appeals do not stop the clock on limitation. Claims have to be submitted before appeals have concluded if the time limit is approaching. There is a crossover with ignorance, though. As I said just before, there may be cases where an employee's ignorance of the law during an appeals process results in an extension of time. Finally, new information. What if new information comes to light after the deadline, which suggests that the employee's claim is stronger than they originally thought? In theory, that can mean it wasn't reasonably practicable to present the claim in time. Let's take the situation where someone is made redundant and only discovers someone else has been employed to do their job after the deadline for lodging the claim has expired. A tribunal would probably find that it was not reasonably practicable to lodge in time. An employee needs to show that they were reasonable to be unaware of the situation for as long as they were, and they must also show the new information Genuinely change their view from believing they didn't have a claim to believing that they did. But let's assume that for one reason or another, for any of the seven reasons or something else entirely, a tribunal agrees that it wasn't reasonably practicable for the employee to bring the claim within three months. They've still got to bring the claim within a reasonable period of time after. That discovery. Remember the second part of the two stage test. Let's look at that in more detail. What is a reasonable further period in which to lodge a claim? Here's a few cases that have looked at the issue. In James W. Cook against Tipper, employees were dismissed but told they would be re employed when work picked up. And as a result, they didn't submit claims. After the deadline for bringing claims, the employer closed down. Some employees lodged claims a few days after the employer closed down, others a month later. And on the facts, the tribunal said a period of two weeks, two weeks was reasonable, and it dismissed any claims lodged after that. In Locke against Hand's Music Centre, a five-month delay was found to be reasonable, where the employee was undergoing cancer treatment which had started immediately after his dismissal. Then two others that seem particularly generous and concerning for employers. In Remploy against Brain, an employee was found to have lodged her claim within a reasonable period when she waited a further three weeks after finding out about the time limit. Her claim was two and a half months late. She waited for the ET1 to arrive in the post. She hadn't known about online submission, she focused on the internal appeal and she spent five days preparing the form before lodging it. Nevertheless, it was reasonable to wait three weeks after finding out about the time limit, said the tribunal. In Norbert Dentressangle Logistics against Hutton, An employee was found to have submitted a claim within a reasonable period, even though he waited a further six weeks because he was unable to face completing the claim form. He didn't give any medical evidence, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal reluctantly refused to interfere because it said medical evidence was only desirable rather than essential. Unfortunately, the appeal courts can't interfere with decisions unless the tribunal has reached a perverse Factual conclusion. So, you've just heard me read one of the chapters from my new book on employment tribunal time limits. If you're interested in getting hold of a copy, it's actually only available to members of the HR Inner Circle, which is the UK's community for smart, ambitious HR professionals. If you want to have a look, you can find out more at www.hrinnercircle.co.uk. And meanwhile, Let me know what you thought about this episode. Contact me on Twitter at Daniel underscore or send me an email via podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk. And please do subscribe to these podcasts. You'll get them automatically every single week if you do. Information about subscribing at www.danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast, or just use your normal podcast downloading device to regularly download Employment Law Matters. Again, thank you for listening. If you have the chance, please do leave a review on iTunes. I do like a good five-star review. I'm Daniel Barnett. Goodbye.